The Wall Street Journal recently reported that business software companies like Salesforce, Okta, CrowdStrike, Box, and Workday are all reporting a slowdown in customer spending on technology solutions. While the global pandemic amplified the revenues of many technology companies, the current economic environment appears to be having the opposite effect. How do seasoned technology executives navigate these choppy waters? Welcome to Tectonic, the podcast where we explore what makes technology business models successful in today's world. In this episode, I will be joined by Michael Pereira, General Manager of IBM Technology Lifecycle Services. In today's episode, we will be discussing several tactics Michael has pursued to optimize the service business he is responsible for at IBM. And we will also discuss the important tactics to consider if revenue is slow. Mike, welcome to Tectonic. And you know, I know you recently uh, changed positions. Um, and and first of all, I want to thank you for serving on the TSI Executive Board for several years. Uh, really, I think helpful for for TSI in the industry. Um, and I want you to, to we're going to talk about the responsibilities you've had over the past several years. So why don't, why don't we start there and, and tell us what you what you have been responsible for at IBM? Yeah. So. Just wrapping up uh, almost three years as a general manager of technology lifecycle services at IBM, which if you look at the IBM financial statements, uh, we externally report as infrastructure support. Uh, That essentially means a $6 billion business predominantly, but not solely around hardware support, both of IBM and non-IBM technology equipment. Perfect. And, um, and and let's start with this definition of life cycle services, because that may not be ubiquitous in the in- industry. Um, and how are they different from, if I think about the traditional support services, you know, that somebody like an IBM might provide, help us understand the difference with life cycle services. Sure. So support is a piece of the overall technology life cycle, but it's not the only thing in a technology life cycle. And what I mean by that is virtually everything that happens from the point that you purchase technology, whether it's hardware, software, it could be compute, it could be storage, it could be networking, whatever, the technology doesn't really matter. But the fun really starts after the purchase. Mm -hmm. So it starts with the beginning of that life cycle of what happens once you take receipt of the technology. So you have to install it, then you've got to configure it, then you've got to deploy it. Once you get it up and running, then it's how do you take advantage of the new capabilities and have you started to optimize for performance or have you optimized for security or have you optimized for resilience? Then you get to, I say, business as usual support, which is, okay, I have a problem. Let me pick up the phone or enter a a ticket on the web. Let me get a response on how do I fix the problem and then I continue to go forward from there, that aspect of it, we're shifting more and more to be more proactive rather than Mm -hmm. reactive. And then the last part in the life cycle is really about refreshing that infrastructure based on your latest needs. So what's the new business requirements that then translate in new technical capabilities? What does capacity planning look like now versus when you originally installed the equipment? What's your migration plan you know, how do you go through all that, which then starts the life cycle all over again? And so, you know, when I think about life cycle services historically in tech, and you hit on some of those key milestones, right? So, hey, they buy it. I've got to install it. I've got to integrate it. I've got to run it. You got to call me if it breaks. But, you know, I don't think that's 
the current life cycle anymore of what people are expecting from their technology providers. So tell me like some of the catalysts for some of the new services you've had to put on the table to sort of redefine what it means to be involved in the life cycle with the customer. Well, I mean, I think it starts out with historically, everything that I just described was ad hoc. Yeah. You know, way back when clients would do almost all of it themselves. Mm -hmm. And then what we've seen over time is an increase in complexity, number one, in their environments that goes hand in hand with a decrease in bandwidth and a decrease in skills. On the, you talk about the customer, a decrease in their bandwidth and, and the skills that they've, they have you know, internally. Yep. yep, exactly. Right. So as a result, there's this need in the market to augment and in some cases completely outsource the various steps in the lifecycle. And as a service, whether you choose platform as a service or infrastructure as a service or whatever as a service, you know, it's probably the best realization of all of the above. But we also know that as a service market is, is only one part of most of our clients' infrastructure. When I say mm-hmm. our IBM and you know, enterprises at scale, you know, particularly for clients who have that kind of size whereby they can drive economies of scale um, or they can likely run infrastructure for themselves cheaper than buying it from a hyperscaler or, or they've got regulatory requirements to run on-premise. So. Yep. As a result, that shift is now, how do you bring the best of the end-to-end to the client? They can pick and choose what they want, but we're taking an approach now that's much more proactive and much more holistic than we ever have before. Yeah. So I'm really curious your perspective, because again, you're sitting there across this $6 billion service business, right? Supporting all these types of customers. And and obviously, if you listen to any IBM commercials, you know, hybrid is key, (laughs) then it's not going away, right? So, and I agree with that. I mean, you know. I'm glad to see those commercials have hit the mark. Good. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's to say, what's the future is hybrid. And, And I don't disagree with that, right? Not everybody can move everything to the cloud, to your point. But I'm really curious your perspective, what you put on the table here about the landscape of internal IT. Because, you know, there's no doubt there are customers, as you as you've said, that have, you know, scale, a lot of economies, probably IT may be really core to who they are as a company. And so they're going to be heavily invested in that capability internally. And they're going to need, you know, a certain help from from their technology providers, but but a lot of it they're comfortable doing themselves. But do you see that needle kind of moving where the internal IT departments, whether they're in an on-prem posture or a cloud posture or a hybrid posture, where more and more of them are looking and saying, hey, we really do need our technology providers to step up more because this is not our core competency. This is not something that we can either we want to invest in or maybe more importantly, can afford to find the talent, maintain the talent. I mean, are, are you seeing any trends there or is it status quo? What's your perspective? Well, I, I certainly don't think it's status quo. Um, I, I think if you look at the market holistically, uh, you rewind 10, 15 years ago, you had and maybe even 20, you had this huge shift to outsourcing. Right. right? And that was the, okay, let's go outsource it. It's not a core competence and somebody else will do it. They can do it better. They can do it at scale. From from where I sit, that's slowed down quite a bit, if not having actually started to reverse, right? And, and that reversal, I think, comes from most or many companies, at least, regardless of what industry you're in. You could be in automotive, you could be in industrial, you could be in retail, you could be in banking, But I think most companies now realize that technology is the competitive differentiator for them. 
and how they use it. And if they were just looking at technology as, well, it's just infrastructure, I just outsource that to somebody else and, you know, buy whatever I need off the shelf. Mm-hmm. That's a really hard competitive place to be long-term in, in how you sustain that, right? And as a result, I think the happy medium now is somewhere in between where you say, okay, where I can buy it completely as a turnkey thing, I will, but I also need to distinguish where is the differentiation for me as a business, which in turn translates into where is that differentiation in technology? That's where I'm going to major on. And that's where I'll then surround it with other help from other partners. So so try this one on for size, because you know my observation on this, my intuition is, in, like you said, 10, 15, maybe 20 years ago, big push for outsourcing, but it was a pretty blunt instrument, which was, you know, your mess for less. Hey, I just don't want to manage this stuff. And, you know, running my payroll is not a core competency for me, right? So, hey, IBM or whoever, you go do that for me. To a world where, to your point, for most companies, technology capabilities are integral to their, to what they're doing for a living, no matter what, right? And so, they've had to move that back. But, but my observation is, at the same time, they are turning to their technology providers and saying, you really have to bolt in and augment my capabilities. And so, you know, George Humphrey and I, who, you know, does our managed services uh, research, we always talk about, you know, it's not your mess for less anymore. It's your mess for more. In other words, how can an IBM come in and say, look, this piece of the pie, I can manage that for you and add more value than you can do for yourself. I'm not saying I'm going to take the whole thing over. I'm not saying it's all about, you know, the lowest price per month for whatever, but I know where I strategically can insert and take you know, certain aspects of the activities over and add a lot more business value to you. Does that accurately reflect sort of what you're seeing with your conversations with customers? Yeah, I I think so. Um, I also think that there's going to continue to be an evolution, right? And and you've kind of seen it from the early as a service providers. And the question is, how do you take that as a service experience and then meld it with the on-premise regulatory compliant, integrated environment, right? And mm-hmm. I think you're going to see a lot more of that happening here and, and that segment of the market really starting to mature and take off uh, in the coming months and years. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it is, it's interesting times because I do think that this relationship between the technology provider and the customer and their expectations continues to evolve, right? And I think that cloud hybrid, that is one variable impacting it. I think talent is, is another variable impacting it. I mean, I think there's several variables that are, it's sort of the dance continues to evolve in terms of what's the right relationship there that is the best for both the customer and the technology provider. So it's gonna be fun to watch. But you know, the main thing I wanted to click into with you today was around profitability and services. And so I recently did this blog titled, you know, why SaaS companies are unprofitable. And one of the, the key issues is the amount of service activities that these companies just, you know, they give away for free, right? Whether it's some technical support, whether it's customer success. And you, you and I spoke earlier and you, you made the, the statement that, you know, IBM has always viewed services as an opportunity for value creation, not, not a cost center. Um, and, and you've been working hard to improve the profitability of, of the services that you manage. So what do you think are some of the key levers that you have pulled to improve service profitability? Yeah. So, you know, first, I think that your point about looking at support as a value creation mechanism 
is really important. Mm-hmm. Right? And if you look at the, the financial model for tech companies that have been around for a while, generally you'll see subscription and support split out in their financial statements. And you generally see pretty significant amount of revenue as well as profit that, that comes with it. Mm-hmm. Um, in the case of as a service companies, that line is blurred intentionally. And in some cases, by the way, for good reason, actually. But at the end of the day, there's different activities and different methods of value capture between kind of the old and the new, if you would. Um, and even for those of us with a history of service as a profit center, you could certainly make the argument that we over-deliver on a regular basis, right? Now, in some cases, those are our biggest clients. So we should be over-delivering, you could argue. In other cases, uh, it's an attempt to delight our clients regardless of their size. But yeah, that's on a basis of habits that developed over decades. So uh, just to, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but is, is over-deliver code for doing things you probably should have charged for, <laughs> but you end up doing yeah. it for free. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and if you look at our, our T's and C's, you could go very you know black and white legally and say, no, we're not responsible for that. So sorry, not, not our problem. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you know, we've developed those habits and we've also developed processes over decades to try and find the happy medium between the two, even though I think we still probably err more on the side of over delivering than, than we would otherwise. Mm-hmm. So, you know, now you apply that in an as-a-service world where if you're an as-a-service company, by definition, it's brand new for the client. And because it's brand new for the client, there's even more to help the client get over the hump as a move to whatever your new as-a-service thing is. Yep. So, you know, you've got a financial hump to get over where they've got a cost justify the migration and the move and what do you do with stranded assets and employees and all the rest of that? And how do you make that financial piece work? Uh, you've also got a huge gap in terms of processes, right? When I go as a CIO, if I go from something that's always been on premise that I've got all kinds of processes set around that my resiliency is set around that my HA is set around that my security and regulatory stuff is set around that. And now I've got to go, basically rip out the hearts and the lungs to do this transplant, uh, there is a ton of work. And as a result, I think a lot of the as-a-service players have necessarily had to jump in to do more to help those clients with that move, which just perpetuates itself over time that they do more. And well, I already did it before, so I'm going to do it again. And then they ask for something else. Well, let me do that. And Right. And as a result, next thing you know, you turn around and you go, holy cow, that's uh, expensive. There's a lot that they're doing. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, the analogy I often use with folks is I say, you know, there was a day when hardware companies were selling PCs and servers and the support was just thrown in because there was so much margin in the core hardware product. And the customer, you know, you just threw that in, right? The customer's like, hey, it's your product. Why would I pay you to support it? It better work. It better be solid. But as those you know different market segments in a sense commoditized margin came out there was an inflection point where you know your pc manufacturer you're saying look you know you're buying this thing for $500 no i'm not going to support it for the next 3 years right you if you want that there's a support contract i think that for saas and the current economic environment we're going to we're at that same inflection point 
because you know, as you know, I study this all day long in terms of what their what their P and Ls look like and their profitability, and because they are historically have done so much for free. And to your point, with complexity, they're doing more and more right to to help the customer be successful. Don't have this muscle to start breaking out what's included right in a, in a core subscription and what is now beyond that line. That they're going to have to build that muscle because it's I think it's unsustainable. To, you know, to, to stay in that, in that posture. And I actually think, and I'd be, I'd be curious because you work with customers, you know, that are in a lot of different postures. I think, you know, for something like IBM, especially if you're dealing with a lot of hybrid customers, you're in a better position because A, for the historical on-prem stuff, they're used to dealing with you, you know, around what, you know, where are those lines, right? What's included, what's not included, where do you help me? For hybrid, they're understanding, like you said, that, hey, you're helping me, you know, in this complex environment. And so you're not in that pure, SaaS posture, <laughs> right? That a lot of those companies are. But I, but the question I have there is, do you, if you are dealing, with, let's say, with a pure SaaS offering from IBM, do you have to deal with some of the expectations with customers that are being set by these born in the cloud companies that are throwing everything in, or do you find that you can get the customers, you know, through the knot hill and say, hey, you know, this is again what we will do for free, what we will not, even though this is a SaaS offer. How do you see customer expectations there? Well, I mean, at, at the end of the day, it's it's a competitive environment, right? So, yes, we, we certainly try and drive to standard as much as possible. And a big piece of our evolution within technology lifecycle services in the last few years was doing just that, driving to standard everything, right? Standard offering, standard processes, standard backend system, standard automation, standard everything. But... There's also business opportunities that arise and competitive situations that arise. And you're always trying to balance the, how do I maintain standard as much as possible against what is a client needs? And then sometimes yeah. those client needs aren't standard at the time, but they become standard over time because, you know, again, everything in technology is always changing and as is the environment around us. So. Yeah, I hear you loud and clear there. That is, it's not cookie cutter. It's not one size fits fits all. But I think again, you bring back the lens and you start thinking about what are the general trends going to be. And I think uh, again, I think about your heritage at IBM there. Again, understanding that service motions are value creation motions, and that that's deep in your DNA. And I think that that serves you well as a company. And I think that that type of DNA is going to end up serving every tech provider. Well, in fact, I, you know, I was actually on a run this morning and I heard a podcast and it was a chief product officer and they were talking about, this is fascinating because I haven't thought about this, but basically they were, they were talking about the fact that they're watching companies face, you know, some slowdown here and that they can put the, you know, and they deal a lot with product teams and can put these companies in two buckets. So there are technology companies that have always viewed their IT activities as pure expense and overhead, right? And just, you know, cost. But there are companies that have have turned IT into value creation and revenue center, right? I mean, if you think about something like this obvious example of, you know, AWS, then Amazon, and they're not the only ones who've had that mentality, right? So the companies that have flipped that cost structure on its head and turned it into value creation are doing pretty well, right, in terms of their business model. And it's the same concept here with services, right? You had to flip it on its head and say, it's not just a cost of doing business. This is an opportunity for value creation. So it's to be interesting to see if not only the service motion 
but some of the core IT motions that companies start thinking differently about how can I turn that into, in a sense, a profit center because I can add value, add service activities into the marketplace based on what I'm doing here. Yeah, and you know, for us, the the simplest example is we provide white label support under the covers for a number of other technology companies around the world, right? Yep. Client calls and somebody picks up the phone, they think it's somebody other than IBM when in practice it's actually IBM under the covers because we've established we have the core competence, we've got support across 170 countries around the world. We can deliver mission critical at mission critical times within SLA requirements, et cetera. Yep. So that's you know, a very simple example of what you just said. Yep. Yeah, you turn that investment that you've made and that cost structure into an opportunity to create create revenue. That's great. So I'm going to shift gears on you a little bit here from sort of profitability into AI because that, and it's funny, <laughs> I've read more articles about AI and who's releasing what in AI in the last three weeks. I mean, you and I had the schedule a little while ago and I wanted to talk to you about it, but it's even become you know a hotter topic in tech, right? The impact of AI. So describe some of the use cases that you see specifically when it comes to technology services. Well, so for us, the most basic starts with something we call call home, right? which is again, back to our mission critical systems around the world. Clients configure it so that it proactively notifies us if and when there's an issue before it becomes a bigger issue, right? Mm-hmm. The, the best support call of all is the one that you avoid. Uh, and that's, that's ultimately, right, our, our goal. So uh, we end up with 4 million of those calls a year where the machines are signaling potential issues and sending data back to us. And, you know, we continuously improve and use AI to refine the patterns, to cut out the noise, uh, what's real versus what's not, what needs to be actioned, what needs to be actioned immediately versus the likelihood of something not really being a scenario where it takes down a system. So in turn gives us the ability to get ahead of the incident, but then also balance the efficiencies of delivery, right? Because if we get that notification and that notification generally has at least 10 days before it really becomes an issue based on all of our analytics and the thousands and thousands of clients and hundreds of thousands of machines we've got or millions of machines we've got around the world, then it also gives us an opportunity to be smarter about when do we send technicians out? And when we do send them out, how do we bundle a bunch of different things in one shot versus go one day, fix one piece, come back. And then the next day we're back at the exact same client, potentially at the exact same machine, if not the exact same data center and an area within the data center. So it's ultimately better for the client and it's better for us at the same time. I want to ask a question on that one because, you know, AI is often categorized as a challenge around big data. In other words, if you want effective AI, You've got to have a lot of data pouring into it so you can really run, you keep running the analysis, keep running the analysis to start coming up with these, you know, really smart answers. And so I'm curious because, you know, the one thing you put on the table there is that obviously you have the big data, right? You've got all these endpoints out there, all these servers, all this stuff that's throwing off telemetry that you can now start to analyze. What was the runway um, to basically turn, you know, a mountain of raw data into, you know, really smart, actionable software responses. Obviously, that's not weeks and months, but I mean, I'm, and I'm putting you on the spot there, but I mean, just to give the audience a sense of like, hey, A, you got to get the data. But once you start getting the data to really put it into an AI engine 
and start getting really smart. That was like, you know, how, how long was that journey? Yeah. I mean, I, for us, we've been at this for 15, 20 years at least. Yeah. Um, now I, I won't say that that's the runway in order to be effective, but if you took a step back and you say, okay, what are, what are the variables that are going to impact how long it's going to take you mm-hmm. to be effective? You know, to me, it's, it's like a lot of things in life. It's the 80, 20 rule, right? So what are the 20% of the things that drive 80% of your issues and 80% of the volume, right? And depending on your technology and the solutions that you've got, how complex are they, depending on how much serviceability you've built into those products to be able to get access to the most relevant data that helps you quickly get to the real source of the problem, you know, you could be up and, and running in months easily. Um, again, starting small, starting with that 80-20 rule on what's going to have the biggest impact, what's the simplest use cases, because even in the 80% of your volume, you're going to have some of that 80% that is really simple. And then you're going to have some of that 80% that's really big, hairy, complex kind of thing. So yep. again, do the relative prioritization and then start to go from there. And, and do you think that the tools to basically, because you said you started this 15 years ago, and obviously the state of AI 15 years ago is way different than it is today, right? So so if I play back, I mean, if you, a, again, you, you've got data to play with at the, at the right volume level. You focus on problems that are, you know, hopefully not the super complex ones, the, the more simpler, you know, scenarios. Uh, and you double down on that with the tools that are available today. It's, I mean, that runway is compressed, hopefully, where people can basically start playing. That's my impression as, as well. So there's hope there. Oh, for, for, for sure. Yeah. So the support, you know, the call home, preventing the entire support call, classic use case for folks with AI, big home run for both you as a provider and the customer. What were some of the other use cases that you've had AI applied to? That's a foundation that you can just continue to build upon. Because as you're collecting that data, as you're automating the responses and the root cause analysis, and then in turn, you start to automate the response of what do you do when you see that problem? Mm -hmm. At first, you can treat that behind the glass, so to speak, with your support engineers or your service engineers. And then as you refine the accuracy and the capabilities, then you can graduate to kind of at the glass, if you will, which is now enabling that self-service directly for your clients. Mm -hmm. And from there, then you can ultimately integrate into full process flows that what we talk about is a touchless delivery experience, right? Whereby from the time that a client comes in, enters a ticket online, the data behind it and the logs automatically get uploaded. That kicks into this AI engine, the analysis, the root cause, what's the action that needs to be taken. That automatically kicks off the process flows, make sure that schedule goes out to the client, make sure that the parts get sent to the client if appropriate, make sure that the directions, if it's a client self-service compared to if it's a a service engineer who's actually going out to service the issue itself, right? All of that, now all of a sudden you just start layering piece on piece on piece on piece. And it ends up being a better experience for the client. And it also ends up being a much more efficient experience for the delivery organization itself. So I'm curious, as you were building those pieces, right? Piece on piece on piece, uh, I'm sure there were 
surprises along the way and, and, and maybe some things that didn't you know work as you initially thought they would. What, what are some of the lessons learned you would share with folks if they were going on that journey? You know, again, it's probably a multi-year journey to build that you know, level of capability. Yeah. Uh, you, you touched on it already, which was just the sheer volume of data and yep. the big data problem, big with a capital B, um, sheer big data problem that you had. Right. There's you start with just a complexity of parsing what's real versus not. Yep. Right? And in most of our client environments, there is an infinite, almost infinite number of variables at play at almost all times. Some of that service issues, some of it's you know how much serviceability built into the product that I mentioned before. Once you start parsing what's real versus not real, then it's getting down into the, OK, what's the part of the data that really matters and you know, there's only so many if then else's that you can nest mm-hmm. before you're out of capacity to do if then else's. The scenario of sympathy sickness is another one that you see a lot, right? Where one piece of technology appears to be the one that's broken or not working. Yeah. But in reality, that's an effect of something upstream okay. that is not working that then you know makes it look like it's sick, but in practice it's working as designed. It's it's getting bad input from somewhere else. You know, so each one of those things has a very long and potentially dark path um, <laughs> of pitfalls uh, around it. And what about the people side of it? I'm, I'm reading this book right now about the future of AI, and there's a lot of focus on what does it mean to employees, the workforce, et cetera. And so, you know, I, I think about a traditional support organization, traditional support professionals, and they're like, hey, you know, my job is to basically take that phone call, right? To be the hero, to solve that for the customer. And, you know, you're telling me we're going to roll out technology where I may never even get that phone call. That could be good, but that could be threatening. So what did you learn by watching this technology, you know, roll out through a, a large multinational workforce? Well, a, a couple things. Uh, number one, technology will never completely replace humans. Right, of course not. Uh, and I believe that at the core. And with that, and part of our strategy around technology lifecycle services has been to continuously move up the value chain and provide higher value things for our clients. So as we continue to automate more and more leveraging AI, then the intelligence of, of the humans who are feeding that, ultimately that intelligence gets used somewhere else further up the value chain. Mm-hmm. So whether that's going from what we would call a control center or an exception kind of initial entry point in a, in a role into being more of a level one, level two support engineer into doing more around technology services, starting with basic health checks and then getting into more uh, configuration, optimizations, resiliency, security, performance, that creates this continuum of opportunities. And look, the reality, I think, for all of our businesses is you can never have too many people with too many skills. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if anything, the the demand is always outstripping the supply. So uh, for us, it's it's worked out really well. Yeah, I mean, I, I believe in that hopeful vision that you just articulated there, which is I, I believe that the smarter the technology becomes, it allows employees to work up the value chain, right? So they're, they're not working on things as like, oh, you know, I'm doing the same thing again. And, you know, gosh, we, should, we could be smarter about this. Wherever you can get software to solve those problems so that you can click up and add more value to your customer. I mean, I, th- I really do believe that that's, you know, the vision in the, in the future. I think it's interesting, though, 
there's no doubt though, as these technologies become more ubiquitous, there are going to be employees that are still going to be nervous about that, right? They're going to be like, well, maybe, maybe I don't want to, I like what I'm doing, right? I don't want to click up the value chain or I'm not sure I can. So it's, it is going to be not a frictionless journey, but back to the final point you made there, today's world, and especially when you look at tech, talent is so tight. It's like, we need these levers. I mean, there, you, you can't hire enough smart people with good skills, regardless of what's going on in the economy right now. It's still, I don't think, really put a dent in the talent war that's going to go on here for several several years. So I'm, I'm again, hopeful and optimistic about the, about the impact there. So talk about jobs. I mean, what's going on in this current environment, you know, there's, you know, estimated over 150,000 tech jobs now who've been eliminated coming into January of, of 2023. And when the industry's growing, when companies are growing, it's easy to create career growth opportunities in that story for employees. But how do you create growth opportunities if we are going into a downturn? And again, you've been, this is not your first go rodeo here. So what are your, some of your tactics there? Well, so first, I think being really focused uh, makes a huge difference. Yeah. And and knowing who you are and what you're going to do and what you're not going to do, those two sides of the coin are, are almost as important. And you could argue what you're not going to do is more important, actually, in some ways than what you are going to do, mm-hmm. because you can always get stretched in different directions. I think the the other thing that I've learned over time is you never think that you have enough resources to do what you think you want to do mm-hmm. and you need to do. Yep. And I think the reality is, is that very rarely will you ever have the the pleasure of having more resources than you think you really need. <laughs> so, you know, making, making those tough decisions sooner rather than later um, and always thinking about how could you do something better uh, ingraining that culture, but but maybe more importantly, with that culture comes carving out budget, even though it may be painful at the time, um, to prepare you for those scenarios is equally important, right? Because what that does is, number one, it, it forces you and, and the organization to really look at things differently, necessity being the mother of all invention. Um, and number two, by doing it proactively, then as things slow down, you know, you're already way better positioned than you would have been otherwise. Mm-hmm. Right? You will have already run the experiments. You will have already figured out some of the things that will work and not work at scale. And you kind of keep those in your pocket. And then you just go down the list of, okay, which is uh, one's highest confidence to lowest confidence and which one's are the easiest versus the hardest to implement, which ones have the fewest amount of dependencies versus the most amount of dependencies. And at the end of the day, that gets you and puts you in a position that with the slowdown, you're ready to, to go take action. Yeah. I mean, in times like this, people really have to do their homework in a sense, to your point, to really have a well thought through plan, right? About what, you know, where they're going to put their time and treasure. And in your opening comment there, I, I heard a phrasing the other day, I forget from who, but I loved it because they said, look, when you have this downturn and you see, again, 150,000 layoffs, people start having this mantra of, hey, man, you know, you have to do more with less. We're just, you're right. We're going to have less headcount. We're going to have less budget. So you just got to do more with less. And this person flipped on its head and they said, actually, the mantra, the philosophy should be, let's do less and make more, which is let's really prioritize on where we're going to invest. And in those investments, we have to, you know, and again, whether you're trimming your portfolio, whether you're, you know, trimming your initiative list, whatever, but the ones that we double down on 
are the ones that we really believe you know, are going to have the biggest impact on the business, on revenue, on margin, on whatever. And I think that that is just, I love that phrasing because just asking your, your staff is, hey, I know we had to do a trim here or whatever, and we had to cut back some budget or whatever, but just soldier on. Let's just keep doing everything we've ever been doing. I, I don't think is a winning you know, message to employees. <laughs> They're just going to get frustrated. Yeah. It, it, it turns out at the end of the day, there's no getting around. There's only 24 hours in the day. Yeah, exactly. So there's only so many working hours and waking hours that anybody can do. And as a result, you're, I think you're hundred percent right. It's, it's, you have to make those choices and you have to stop doing certain things. Yep. And then you have to do things in a different way than you've ever done them before. Right. And again, it, that does not mean that it has to be at the expense of the client experience. In fact, I would argue a lot of the things that we've done that have been more efficient for us ultimately end up being a way better client experience, yeah, right? Even, even take the most simple scenario of scheduling. Mm-hmm. Having the ability to schedule it on your phone if, if you're the client is is not a terrible thing. In fact, it's, it's actually an expectation now, yeah, right? Yeah. I don't want to have to call somebody and I don't want to have to sit on hold and I don't want to have to talk to somebody about what they can and can't do. Like, I just want to go into my phone, say, yep, here's the time that I'm available. Here's the location. Yes. And by the way, if something happens because things happen, I want to be able to do the same thing and reschedule it, not have to pick up the phone again. From a provider perspective, it's way more efficient to have that be automated through that mobile device than it is to have to put somebody on a answering a phone and then spend however much time answering all those calls. You know, and this is a little bit of a tangent, but I mean, I, I have to click into this and she put it on the table. And that is, you know, this last book, we talk about the fact that complexity kills. And what we mean by that is that B2B customers are looking for less complexity when they're working with their providers, like you just suggested, right? And so what we've seen in the B2C world, and I always use the scenario of, you know, I've flown a gazillion miles on my preferred airline and I had a, you know, a platinum 1-800 line to call and I'd always talk to somebody to book a flight and change this. And at some point they start saying, you know, Mr. Law, you know, we now have a, a web app, you know, or a mobile, you could use that. And at first you're kind of resistant and then you start doing it. And then you get to this point where you're like, I don't want to have to call anybody. That's the last thing I want to do is wait in the queue when I can click, 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 see all the seats. That mentality is really what I think the B2B world has to embrace more the scenario you were just describing, right? If you're, you know, if your account exec is saying, no, 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 I want them to call me and because they like to talk to me. And it's like, no, no, you know what they really want to do? Pick up their phone, hit three buttons and get something done. That is what they want. And they're getting conditioned to that in the B2C world. And I, and I still think it's amazing how many B2B enterprise tech companies still just are not leaning into that enough. I don't know. I don't know why, <laughs> but, but I think the end game is clear here that that's, you know, what customers are going to be looking for, you know, cause they're just going to be used to it. And I do think that the providers that get there sooner, you know, that, that is going to be a differentiator for sure, because it's like, look, you're a lot easier to do business with. So it's fascinating to watch. So I'm watching the time here. One final question. Again, you've been managing in tech for a while, like I have. And one question I like to ask veterans of the industry, is there anything that's different about the current environment compared to other tech downturns you've experienced, whether it was, you know, the Great Recession, whether it was .com, whether it was, you know, something before that, but, you know, anything feel different about this one to you? For me, it does. And I think the the net is that it's more competitive than ever. Mm, interesting. You know, COVID really accelerated the need and the appetite for companies to not just invest more and faster in technology, mm-hmm. 
but ultimately to go drive more efficiency and real-time customer service, right? All of those things work together and really work together in a way, if you think about the leaps that we made over a two-year period that was terrible for much of the world, but from a, how much progress got made uh, business-wise over that two to three years, a, I, would, I would argue it was probably two to three times at least yeah. uh, what would have gotten done without COVID really making it a necessity. Um, in addition to all that, investor expectations on revenue and profit are you know, higher than I think they've ever been yeah. before. So I think you'll see more of a survival of the fittest than we've ever seen before, yeah. which ultimately goes back to you know, our earlier conversation around needing to drive a focus. You know, For us, for IBM, as a company, that focus is very clear. It's to be the leader in hybrid cloud and AI. For technology lifecycle services under the umbrella of IBM, it's also very clear. And that's to be our client's technology lifecycle partner anchored on IBM systems and extending to enterprise networking with core partners like Cisco. We'll see where it goes from here. You never think it can get any crazier. You never think it's going to be more challenging, yet every day we wake up and both of those seem to be uh, true. So, Well, and I'll just amplify your point about you know the investor expectations and 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 how high they are because as we've gone into you know a slowdown a little bit of slowdown in growth, you know when you have SaaS companies that they're saying hey I'm only going to grow let's say pick a number 25 percent, and then investors just pummeling them right and saying oh you're only going to grow double digits that tells you how high the bar became through the pandemic and people were just really expecting tech providers to just grow, 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 never stop. And so now that that music is slowing down, it, you know, it is a harsh reality. And again, the, the focus on profitability is coming to the top of the queue there, right? This balance. And so I do think investor expectation is going to be in a sense kind of brutal over the next year, right? They're going to be really looking for tech providers to step up in, to your point, what is, you know, a pretty highly competitive environment. So it's going to be you know, everybody hold on tight <laughs> as we as we go as we go forward. But um, as always, this is a great industry. I wouldn't trade it for anything in terms of working in it. It's always always been you know a lot of fun and never a dull year. So hey, th- thank you so much for your time. And by the way, good luck. I know you're checking on a, a new big role at IBM, and so um, you know I'm sure you're going to do awesome in that as well. And again, thank you so much for your service on the TSI Advisory Board. Really appreciated uh, the time you put in there. And I like to end uh, our episodes with a question of the day. And so for today, the question is, if your service organization is not a center of value creation, what are you waiting for? Cheers. Cheers.